0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: I'm going to try and find who's making that whip-like call. Oh, it's a golden whistler. I definitely should have known that. Oh. He's got a. The top of his head is black and then a white chin. And it's kind of darker yellow on the back of the wings. And the belly is golden. Oh, and when he chirps, I can see him. He like puffs up his feathers on his head a little bit. Okay.
2: in Australia we really quite understand how lucky we have it. You know, our bird life in our gardens and even in our urban spaces is bright and brash and engaging and can be very noisy, can be very fun and, and in your face. once you really get into birding, you go from the wonders of a rainbow lorikeet to paying attention to, um, you know, the the smaller native birds, the silver eyes, the fairy wrens, the pardalotes, you know, these incredibly delicate little, you know, less than 10 gram birds that we can still find in our urban spaces. We are so, so fortunate um, to have such a, a beautiful range of wildlife that we can connect with so easily.
0: We're surrounded by wildlife just doing its thing, wherever we are. Hello, I'm Ann Jones and you're listening to Off Track. It's National Bird Week from the 18th to the 24th of October. So off-track producer Joe Kahn has dusted off her binos and he's going to find out how you can get involved.
1: I'm walking along the river at Pan Bend Reserve, which is part of Warrandite State Park in Victoria, just testing out the bird skills before the backyard bird camp starts on the 18th of October. This is Wurundjeri country. Ooh, okay. What's that? Ooh, it's an eastern yellow robin.
2: We've got something like 830-odd species of birds in Australia and over 600 of them have been recorded using urban spaces.
1: Dr Holly Parsons is the Urban Bird Program Manager at BirdLife Australia.
2: The Aussie Backyard Bird Count is uh, BirdLife Australia's annual... I guess you'd say census of the birds that live where people live. So we encourage people all over Australia to, you know, step outside, connect with a bit of nature and report to us about the amazing birds that they're seeing.
1: And so why is that important? Why is the information useful to you?
2: So we're able to compare it to previous years. We're in our eighth year now. And so it's one piece of the puzzle that we at BirdLife Australia use when we're looking at how birds are being impacted right across the country and it's it's also a fantastic way to get people inspired and get people engaged and loving birds as well you know so many of us have a bird story whether we consider ourselves a birder or not Um, and so it's a really great way to remind people about the amazing bird life that lives right outside our front doors
1: I think that's a red wattle bird. That chuck chuck.
2: Year to year, the top 10 bird list doesn't change a huge amount, I have to say. Our urban areas in Australia, which is where most of the data for this count comes in from, are dominated by those big bold birds. Our big native winners like rainbow lorikeets, noisy miners, Australian magpies, sulphur-crested cockatoos. There's this trend that, that those are the birds that do really well because you know they like tall trees, they like open lawn space, they are quite aggressive and so will take on other birds and out-compete them. They eat a range of different foods and they can be really flexible in in how they live. But what we've started to notice um, by generating a few years worth of data now is that while those birds are doing really well, birds like superb fairy wrens, like silver eyes, like willy wagtails, birds that were once more common are showing a decline now in many uh, of our major cities.
1: And so those three birds you just mentioned, how would you describe them compared to those bolder birds like the rainbow lorikeet and magpie?
2: Look, they're a lot smaller. And they're also, particularly fairy wrens and silver eyes, are really reliant on the types of gardens that just aren't as common anymore. They're very what we call shrub-dependent birds. They need that protective layer of some dense vegetation, preferably native, that they can hide out in and they can be protected from predators. And those are the types of features that just aren't as common in gardens now. So unfortunately, what we see is that those lovely birds are dropping out a little bit because they don't have as much habitat available.
1: When you observe a change like that with these some smaller birds not being seen as often, do you know whether that means their numbers are reducing like overall? Are they moving out of the area and moving into new areas?
2: So, for, for the most part, what we find, and this is why we will then look at, you know, data from the Aussie backyard bird count. It's not necessarily that these birds are moving out into other areas; it's that they are disappearing. They don't have other areas to move into. They're very susceptible to things like cats, of course, because they spend so much time quite low to the ground. So, as we continue to sprawl our urban landscapes and we take away that sort of habitat, unfortunately, it's actually a loss of the species, not that they're moving to other areas.
1: Were there any changes in the backyard bird camp last year after the Black Summer bushfires?
2: We certainly saw changes in species responses to fire. For example, with one of our our other surveys, we found that we saw significantly increased sightings of gang-gang cockatoos in garden settings compared to previous years.
1: That's the croaky cry from a gang-gang cockatoo. The gangang gang cockatoo is a small, dark grey cockatoo with a short tail. The male gangang gang has a really distinctive bright red head and a delicate, wispy crest. It's very different from the sharp yellow crest of the sulphur-crested cockatoo. They're fanned throughout southeastern Australia, but as of 2021 are listed as vulnerable in the New South Wales part of their range.
2: They were certainly a species that we know were heavily affected by the fires. They lost a significant portion of their natural habitat and that then translated into them coming into urban spaces last year as refuge and we're waiting to see what's going to happen this year in terms of whether they've moved back into those forest habitats or they're staying in urban spaces.
1: And what are some of the the pressures that they would then face if they're moving into areas that are more urban than what they're used to?
2: Look, there's there's always the question of whether there's enough food resources around for them. The urban space is, you know, full of quite aggressive bird species as well. So we know that birds like noisy miners, a native honey eater, can make life really tough for a lot of other bird species and they will actively chase other birds out of their territories and can, you know, play a huge role in what bird communities are composed of.
1: The sweet gang-gang cockatoos wouldn't know what had hit them.
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. And then gang-gang cockatoos being hollow nesters means that they are looking for very specific um, big old trees to breed in and they would need to compete with some of those more aggressive birds like the sulfur crested cockatoo in order to get those nesting resources.
1: And things like hollows in big old trees are something that are hard to come by at the best of times anyway.
2: Absolutely, they're definitely in short supply, especially in our cities, because of course once trees are big enough and old enough to be forming those all-important hollows, they're often removed because they're flagged as being dangerous.
1: And one of the largest birds that you can find in an urban setting, who also depends on those large tree hollows, is the powerful owl. The Powerful Owl might not feature much in the backyard bird Cat, but BirdLife Australia volunteers have been keeping a close eye on them around Sydney for years. Over winter, the volunteers head out and check on the Powerful Owl pairs to see if they're breeding successfully. But recently they've made some worrying discoveries.
2: Over the last few years in Sydney, what we'd noticed is that we had lots of reports of powerful owl deaths. So we were getting information on where these birds were being hit by cars, where they were coming into care and and unfortunately in a lot of instances being euthanized. And we'd also seen a shift in their diet. We look at their diet by looking at their pellets or their vomit, basically, and you can sort through them, the bones and the hair and the fur and, and feathers that are left behind, and you can identify what they've been feeding on. In the last few years, we've all of a sudden seen this increase in rats and rodents in their diet, which then raised alarm bells for us because it means that they were potentially susceptible to rat poison. So this year, what we've been able to do is send away, sadly, some livers of dead powerful owls to Edith Cowan University for testing to look at what rodenticides, if any, were present within them. We've just got the results back on the first batch of 38 livers and sadly found rodenticide or rat poison in 37 of those 38 bird livers. 10% of those were at a level that would kill the owl outright.
1: There are two types of rat poison you can get off the shelf. First generation and second generation rodenticides. The first generation rodenticides take a couple of doses to kill the rodents and then the chemicals break down relatively quickly in the body of the rodent.
2: The problem with the second generation poisons is while a single dose is fatal to the rodent, it can take a week or more for the rodent to die and the chemicals don't break down in their system. So that means that anything that comes along and eats those rodents gets a dose of that poison as well. And after a period of time, it can accumulate in their bodies. We had 10% of the birds that we sampled here had died outright from poisoning. But what was also scary was that about 60% of them had what we would would be displaying sublethal effects of these rat poisons. So that means that they had a level in their system not to kill them outright, but to impede impede them in some way. So they're likely to have increased risk of being hit by a car, increased risk of striking a window. They can potentially suffer from nutritional deficiencies. It all around leads to very unhealthy birds that then have this increased chance of mortality by other means in an urban space. So perhaps
1: inhibiting them from being able to hunt and feed properly.
2: Exactly. These were all birds found within sort of urban and peri-urban landscapes in sort of Greater Sydney. So these are birds that are taking rodents where that people, you know, the general public are putting out baits for. And I think there is that assumption that if you are buying these products off the shelf, then they must be safe. And unfortunately, it's it's just not the case. And internationally. We've seen that these second generation rodenticides have been withdrawn from public sale in places like Canada, they're restricted in the EU, in places in the US they've been withdrawn as well because there is that mountain of evidence which shows the impact that they have on the ecosystem as a whole because it can get into the food chain.
1: In Australia, it's recently been shown that rodenticides can affect Boo book owls, and even the Tasmanian wedge-tailed eagles, which are probably not even eating the rodents themselves, but rather feeding on smaller predators that have eaten the poison rodents.
2: You know, we can, we can in, as individuals, recognise that these are a problem and not buy the products. So we would ask people not to buy these second-generation rat poisons. It can be hard to know, though, what the second-generation rat poisons are, but recognize that people still need to control rodents. We don't want rats and mice in and around our homes. So there are a range of first-generation rodenticides that you can buy that are much less likely to impact wildlife. There are good old snap traps. There are other different types of rodenticides and trapping mechanisms that are available to use.
1: But that's a lot of pressure on the consumer. So BirdLife Australia is pushing for the second generation rodenticides to be taken off shelves or at least be labelled so that people are aware of the potential risks to wildlife. They're also waiting to hear from the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicine Authority who are currently reviewing the use of rodenticides in Australia.
2: There is a lot more to do to make sure that we can protect our wildlife and we can do that by just having these products be totally unavailable for public sale.
1: Have there been more reports of owl deaths following the mass plague this
2: year? I've certainly been told of, anecdotally of increased deaths of birds, and depending on which state you're in, depends on which government body is collecting data on that. So we've certainly had anecdotal results. I haven't heard of you know, official counts that have come in, but I would be very surprised if there wasn't a lot of collateral damage from dealing with the mouse plague. It's a really difficult situation, of course, because you know we need tools to be able to, to cope with these plagues and nobody should be having to live through that sort of event. And so we need to make sure that it's a good balance, that we are using products that are not going to have that big impact on wildlife, like the first generation products, rather than sort of mass using the second generation products.
1: You might not be up for a winter nighttime outing to check on owls. But BirdLife Australia want to encourage more people to take notice of their local urban birds. And sometimes that might be noticing that something isn't quite right.
2: It can be a really great space if you can do it well, but there are a lot of threats. And so the biggest one at a large scale is urban expansion. It's, you know, simply taking up the green space or, you know, the boundaries of the urban landscape, that sort of peri-urban area, and replacing it with large-scale housing developments. The types of habitats that we tend to leave in urban areas are not great for a whole range of birds. So, we tend to have tall trees, open lawn space, and not a lot in between. That certainly helps things like noisy miners, but it doesn't help your fairy wrens. It makes life very difficult. You also have issues of, of course, cats being a predator on smaller birds so you can of course introduce cat curfews but that doesn't protect wildlife that are out with the cats during the daytime it only protects the ones that might be at risk at night
1: but the more we know about our urban birds the more we can help them and just spending 20 minutes counting the birds in your backyard or just at your window can make a difference if you want to have a go at canting birds, head to aussiebirdcount.org.au to find out how to take part during National Bird Week. That's from the 18th to the 24th of October. You can do a count through the website or you can download an app, which is also called Aussie Bird Count.
2: And that will take you step by step through how to take part. It will locate you on a map and it will start a timer for your 20-minute count. We don't expect everybody is a massive bird nerd, so if you don't know the name of a bird, it doesn't matter. What you do is you use the bird finder that is built in there. You tell us about about how big the bird was, what sort of shape did it have, and what sort of colours did you see, and then that will give you a list of images of the birds that it might have been, and you can select the one from there.
1: Okay, so you can sort of narrow it down to what it could be.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And then after the count is done, we also go through and vet the data as well. So We go through and make sure that we've got it as accurate as we possibly can with an experienced team of amazing volunteers. And then, you know, down the track, we will get a count on what has happened this year.
1: Oh, okay. What's that? Oh, it's an eastern yellow robin. All grey on the back with a beautiful golden yellow belly. I don't know the correct anatomical terms for birds. So I didn't hear it, but I saw it jump up onto a log. Beautiful. Oh, there's two. There's a cocky. Oh, Oh, what's that? Is that a spine bill? Oh, that's the eastern robin. That was the eastern yellow robin.
2: Birds have a way of, I think, once you start watching them it's a little bit of a light bulb moment i feel that you you start to notice once you notice a few you start to notice them everywhere i don't think you have to call yourself a birder to take part in the aussie backyard bird count it's it's easy it's relatively anonymous, um, you know, you can, you can just enjoy your birds and, and share that information through an app um, and, and nobody will judge you for it by any stretch. And I, I will add too that even if you don't see a lot of birds, or even if what you see is you know, a couple of house sparrows or a magpie, that's still really important information. We don't just want the super flashy or the super threatened. We don't just want data on them. We need data on everything. So don't be embarrassed about having an unimpressive bird list. There is no judgment with this with this project. All data is great data. So we need everybody out there reporting whatever they see, no matter how much it, it might be a, a rarity or anything particularly common. Dipping your toe in in the Aussie Backyard Bird Count is perfect because it's it's done through an app. It's that really good way to get a feel for whether birding might be your thing without, you know, needing to to go and commit to, you know, doing bird surveys every month or anything like that.
1: And you can just get outside and look for them. You don't need binoculars or a fancy camera. You just need a little patience. Ooh, there's a tree... Oh. See? I'm too slow. I reckon that was a tree creeper. Oh, I can see another yellow robin. Right, that's one bird. I only really started bird watching at the start of this year. And when I go down to my local reserve and stare endlessly at the tiny brown birds that I can't identify, it actually helps me slow down. It helps my mind stop churning over COVID case numbers and vaccine rates, just for a bit.
2: Oh, I've, I have been told so many stories about how birds have helped people's feelings of well-being in these what has been a really really hard year or more than a year now they are such an incredible way for us to i guess center ourselves and be reminded that there is life continuing outside our little bubble and that there are you know there are actions that you can take in your own space even if you can't go very far that can have can have benefit for the greater good around you and and so birding and creating great spaces for birds and just generally you know appreciating them has I think done wonders for a lot of people it's certainly you know helped me for sure and I work with birds so I have appreciated them even more during this time so hopefully this year, people probably looking to get out and about a little bit more if restrictions are lifting. Um, we can go and we can all go and see some fantastic birds.
0: Dr. Holly Parsons from BirdLife Australia speaking to off-track producer Joe Kahn, whose growing bird obsession I am partly responsible for because I was the one that bought her a bird guide. And if you're interested in the Aussie Backyard Bird Count, I'll put the link to it on the off-track website. And if you head to the Science Show's page or podcast, you're going to find BirdLife Australia's Sean Dooley chatting to Robin Williams about birds. Yes, there's going to be lots of birds this week. And you can also catch Joe again this week on Science Friction with Natasha Mitchell as they dive into the debate about deep sea mining. I'm Ann Jones and meet me here at the same time next week. That's when I'll take you somewhere else.